you move back, you're a repat, you might have had all these ideas of how you wanted to navigate your career or your business, but Africa will humble you right quick. (laughs) Welcome to Third Culture Africans, the lifestyle podcast for dreamers, thinkers, and doers. We celebrate artistry, share stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, listen to diverse perspectives on African success, and those shifting the needle on culture. I'm Zezo Sal, your host. On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, my guest is Arise Ugu, aka the Smart Money Woman. I have known Arise for a number of years, and she's one of the guests who I feel is very relevant given the times we're currently living in. She has built her career based on being resilient and jolted into it through a personal experience. She believes in the power of need and your network being your net worth and believes in building a tribe in order to help you achieve the life and career of your dreams. Hi, Arise. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you so much for having me. You're probably one of the guests that I've known perhaps the longest. We've known each other since we we're about 10 years old. So this is going to be an interesting episode. And you were probably one of the first people I had the conversation with about wanting to start the podcast. I think we talked about it last summer and you're basically doing it now. Yeah. <laughs> I think I felt really strongly about the project and I felt like I knew too many people who were changing our landscape as Africans and I wanted to be able to document that and put that somewhere. And also in the hopes of having a lot of the conversations that we've had in private, hopefully they serve to inspire or encourage and help someone on their journey. So I guess everyone knows you as AKA Smart Money Woman, (laughs) but essentially you've dedicated your life to helping especially African women have the privilege of financial literacy, something that we're not taught to culturally to do is much needed. I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah. Okay. Hi, my name is Arisa Ugu. I'm the author of two books, The Smart Money Woman and the sequel, The Smart Money Tribe. I'm also the founder of a platform called (laughs) smartmoneyafrica.org, which is basically a financial literacy platform tailored to the African millennial woman. I basically do find different mediums to promote financial literacy that's fun, entertaining. I don't do it in the traditional ways. So my books, for example, are a combination of fictional stories about five African girls and their personal finance journeys. But each chapter has smart money lessons and exercises at the end because we like to learn, but we want to learn in a fun, like exciting way. And I find that people learn quicker or easier when they're learning through stories, especially with stories that they can relate to. So each character kind of represents personal finance struggle that I feel like African millennial women go through, whether it's entrepreneurship, whether it's navigating, you know, love and money, money and marriages, 
money in the context of friendships and how we basically have to navigate entrepreneurship differently because of the infrastructure problems that we have in this part of the world. I think it's not just an African problem, right? I Mm. think growing up, it was almost like, you know, the boys got an education in financial literacy because they were going to become heads of the households. And most women and even women in our age group, and I've been guilty of that, of not taking the front seat in my own financial life. And that has an impact, right? And this is my personal financial life. And considering that perhaps I do it in my professional life, but in my personal life, I think it's probably only taken me in the last probably three years. And we all have this dichotomy in our personal lives versus our professional lives. And marrying the two and giving, I guess, your financial literacy the attention it needs, because that is a privilege for your future, for your kids, for your ability to make bold moves, for your ability to start a business, for your ability to leave a job, for your ability to leave a bad marriage, etc, etc. Yeah, most definitely. Like, obviously, you know this, that my whole smart money journey actually came from a personal experience that I had, which was basically that at 27 years old, my marriage fell apart. I basically had to start my life again, get an apartment, pay two years rent up front, pay service charge for one year, buy new furniture. You know how it is in Nigeria. You don't get to pay month to month. Like you have to pay two years rent up front. And it was kind of a a huge impact on my personal savings and investment. And that was a shock for me because A, I had a one-year-old child at the time. So, you know, the fear that comes with that is like, you're not just looking out for yourself. You have, you know, someone else to look out for. And then it was a big aha moment for me because I thought, wow, I work in financial services, right? And I have been saving and investing, but clearly... I haven't been saving and investing enough in proportion to the income that I earned, right? This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. Or even just saving and investing with the mindset that, hey, my savings and investment isn't this fictional thing, right? Mm -hmm. It is for moments and real moments like this. It's for moments like living in a pandemic like we are now or for moments of how can I stand on my two feet having my marriage break down? Can I afford a home? Can I afford to sustain what I've got, my income, my lifestyle, my children, my responsibilities, etc.? So exactly. Like the reason I like to tell this story a lot is because it removes us from that mindset that this is not going to happen to us, right? Because as Africans generally, it doesn't matter how smart you are, there are ways that we're socialized to think about money. And African women mostly are socialized to think about money in a way that is like, okay, yeah, I make money for myself to look after myself, to look after the home. 
but they don't necessarily think about it in terms of their futures, like their financial future. That's a man's job. So most African women see that as their father's job or their husband's job to think or worry about the family's you know, financial future. Just to interject, I don't think it's just even Africans, right? I think it's societal values and expectations around the fact that as women, especially as young women, you shouldn't start thinking about this in your 20s. This is something you perhaps might need to think about when you're older. Mm, true. So the mentality where it's like, when I have more money, then I can worry about, you know, investing more. Exactly. Or, or I, yeah, this is something for adults. So this is something for rich people. But the reality is, in fact, the less money you have, the more vulnerable, you know, you are to things like this pandemic, things like emergencies, because life happens and, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. But for me, that moment was a huge aha moment because I thought, wow, okay, there are other women who are really smart, who work in oil and gas, who work in entertainment, who earn decent income, you know, just like me, but are in very similar situations. And even they've been earning really, really well over the years. So it hits me that in Africa, right, we like the rags to riches story a lot. We're in love with that story. We want to hear about people who are super poor and then they become extremely rich, right? Yeah, there's the American dream. There's all the other versions, right? Exactly. So nobody really talks about the reality, which is most people do not go from extreme poverty to extreme wealth. They go from poverty to maybe lower middle class or to upper middle class, that kind of thing, right? And because we're not taught in any formal framework how to keep money or grow money, so we're not taught in primary mm-hmm. school, secondary school, university, we're just expected to start earning an income in your 20s and figure it out. But because we're not taught in any formal framework, we end up making so many different mistakes and so many you know, assumptions before we now realize, oh, oops, Maybe I need to take a step back and learn about this stuff. So I thought about that. And then I also thought about the fact that our generation, we don't love being told this is how you do this. Because our parents told us, say for a rainy day, don't do this, don't do that. This is frivolous. We don't respond well to those sorts of sentiments, but we connect with stories. So with my books, I feel like women connected with the characters in a real way in that they could say, oh, I feel like I'm Zuri. It felt like you were writing about my life or, oh my God, my friend is Adesua. She's super smart. She's intelligent. She's conservative when it comes to her money. So she's not spending, you know, frivolously or anything. But her husband is her Achilles heel because he's putting a drain on her finances and she's allowing him to do a lot of things and get away with a lot of things take debt in her name and all those type of things in the name of love yeah but the thing is we're not even taught the distinction between you know you touch on something there between love and like financial smarts right like you can love someone but doesn't mean that your finances have to be intertwined in the way that we believe they should be you can have a level of financial independence and still be in a functioning healthy relationship definitely like so for me financial independence is not oh I don't need a man financial independence is 
I'm working, I'm in control of my resources, my values match the way that I spend, I'm saving and investing enough for my future, for my goals, right? And a man's income is just like a value addition to that. If he decides he wants to look after the family, it's important to have your own, you know, goals and your own way of doing things. And it's important to even, you know, be clear when two people are coming together about what your value system is when it comes to money, when it comes to borrowing, when it comes to investing, when it comes to taking risks, when it comes to prioritizing things in the budget. It's important for us to have those conversations before we decide to marry our finances and then agree a strategy on how it's going to be run. And I find that people don't have those conversations. <laughs> in Nigeria, there's so many like spiritual classes and marriage counseling, like for couples that intend to get married, right? That is super important to us here. But I think that we need to start having financial counseling. Agreed, yeah. And also empowering women, right? To Mm -hmm. understand that their financial responsibilities are to themselves as well as their children, etc. You know, I came across an article where, you know, there's a, a huge campaign at the moment that, you know, a woman shouldn't be suffering if she becomes widowed or, you know, things around your will, things around having life insurance, having health insurance, very grown up topics, right? Yeah. Which I don't think it's something that in our consciousness, even amongst our peers, I think you and I are between ourselves, we have these conversations in terms of, hey, you know, how are we navigating our different life circumstances and lifestyles? But I don't think that's a common thing. And I'm hoping through this episode and through shining and sharing your experience with Smart Money Africa, Smart Money Woman, and the opportunities therein that it gives you the privilege to change bad circumstances or improve a circumstance beyond where you are now, whether or not that means growing your wealth through investing smartly, your choice of financial products in terms of bank accounts, where you bank, how you bank, your choice in how you spend, your choice in also how you see your spend, right? Because I think there's a very individual element to how you choose to live your lifestyle and spend. Like you're not going to become a millionaire because you refuse to do your nails for one year. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, you know, people, I see all these like, you know, arguments online about, you know, they'll say, oh, give up your latte or save your money as if saving could actually really make you a millionaire. But the reality is with building wealth, there are two levers, right? Like on one hand, it's really, really about finding ways to grow your money because you can't invest what you don't have right so you have to constantly be seeking ways to increase your personal revenue constantly be seeking ways to monetize opportunities but on the other hand you have to think about the other level which is managing your limited resources right whether you're RSA or whether you're Dangote your resources are limited because they're finite right like you have to prioritize you can't say oh you know what I'm not going to save because at the end of the day that's not what's going to make me you know a millionaire because if you don't know how to manage you're not going to know how to manage 10 billion you'll spend it in the same way and I give people the example of maybe when we first started our careers like your first job 10 years later you're probably earning five ten times more than you were earning at first but somehow your consumption has risen to meet your income 
And for a lot of people, they're not any less broke than they were when they first started. They just live more expensive lifestyles. So I think it's about finding a balance, you know, with both. If I looked at your bank statements, for example, like would they reflect your values or would they reflect what society expects you to do or what your parents want you to do or what your friends want you to do, peer pressure, all that stuff? Or will it prioritize the things that, or will it show me that you prioritize the things that you truly value? So I think it's about balancing both. Yeah, I think that's probably part of the reasons why I think this conversation is pertinent, right? Because especially in the African context, we live in a very shame-based environment where hey, your mates are doing X, why aren't you doing X? Or your mates are doing Y, why aren't you doing that? And so, you know, if you're of a certain standard in life, you should be driving a certain car, wearing certain suits, et cetera, et cetera. Then you find that as you become a lot more liquid and more successful, you have access to more debt. And so there's also that equation of, hey, I can leverage my debt, whether it's an overdraft, whether it's Mm. a credit card, for whatever means to go ahead and acquire the thing that reflects my status, which I think is something that I guess in the African context is taking credit lines with your fashion shop or, you know, the interior <laughs> yeah. design company. Credit line is a fancy way of saying it. It's just onigbesi, detto. <laughs> <laughs> so here we don't have as many formal credit lines open to the masses, right? So the richer you are, the more able you are to secure like a bank loan or whatever. But you don't really have a huge credit card debt problem in Nigeria because it's just not available. You have to have money to borrow money, but then there are informal ways where people borrow from their family members, their friends, and basically get themselves in a lot of mess, right? Yeah. Over this comparison thing. And you're really right. That pressure gets to a lot of people. So the mistakes that they make with money come from that mindset, from that pressure to fit in, from that pressure to feel like you've arrived or you can compete with your peers. So I wrote both books, right, with the mindset that the most important thing for me here is for women to become more self-aware. So understanding what makes me tick, right? What makes me happy Mm. and channeling my resources towards those specific things. Like I always give the example of if I look at me and all my friends, right? Like we all like different things. So if we had 10,000 pounds to go on holiday and we had to pick only three things that we could do, our list would look very different. Because Mm. for example, I like experiences and going out to eat at restaurants and drinking wine and great conversation. And those are things that truly make me happy. When I really Mm -hmm. thought about it at one point in my life, I realized I hate shoes like I find it offensive that I have to pay so much money to wear things that are basically assaulting my feet I hate it but I I did go through a period my sex and city phase right where I was literally just going to the bullring and buying shoes every other week right and I moved back to Nigeria and I have this wardrobe like these shelves with shoes a lot of which I had never worn before I had worn worn once and I thought wow I don't even like shoes but then Sex and City told me that I like shoes right (laughs) and (laughs) something about societal norms and values right 
And discovering yourself in that. I'm telling you, because by the time some real things happened to me, I started to reevaluate what was really, really important to me. So I would say, okay, you know what? I really like bags, but I don't love shoes. Like I'm not excited by the prospect of walking into a store and spending $1,000 on shoes. I'd love them as gifts, but that's just not something that I'm going to continuously spend my money on but I'll spend on experiences. When you're more self-aware and you know the things that make you tick, you can now say, okay, I'm going to spend here and cut expenses ruthlessly on the things that don't really matter to me, which means I can walk into a store with my friends who want to buy shoes and try shoes on with them and all of that stuff without buying a thing. Why? Because I don't care whether it makes me look like I can afford it or I, I can't afford it. That's not my problem. I acknowledge that this is not something that is important to me. So I don't feel the need to buy it just to compete. You touched on the catalyst for you being finding yourself in an interesting space, working in a financial services capacity, advising people on how to manage their own wealth, but then finding your personal circumstances, being in a place where you now have the challenge of navigating life as a single parent. Mm -hmm. Where in that then did adding in entrepreneurship come for you? And again, discovering the author in you, etc. Because you know, we've known each other for so long and writing the book or birthing the author. So I guess if you take us back to moving to Nigeria and the fun word is being a repat, right? <laughs> <laughs> and now being what the Nigerian dream is, right? Going back to Nigeria, making an impact, making a difference and finding success out of that journey. For me, it was very interesting because obviously, like you said, I worked in financial services, you know, and you're used to calling all these big, big figures every day. You're watching capital markets and you know, talking about portfolios that are worth like hundreds of millions of naira. So I think there's a part of you that kind of forgets that that money is not going into your bank account. And it's important to approach your personal finances the way you're approaching work, right? So yeah. it was my big, you know, aha moment, which is why I was inspired to sort of start creating content for women like me, because I thought I even work in financial services, right? But the women who work in oil and gas, for example, who are super smart, who don't have the excuse of saying, oh, I'm a low income earner, so I can't save and invest, right? But no one's really telling them that, it's not about how much you earn. It's about how much you're able to keep and grow. It's about putting something aside today so that in 10 years, in 20 years, when you can't work as hard anymore, you have assets that produce an income that can look after you. And I wanted to create content that was entertaining, you know, and would inspire people to make a change. For the most part, like the books like did that. Like you said, we've known each other for a long time. And honestly, like being an author was not was not one of my life goals. It was just something that I guess along the way I discovered I was good at writing and I found a way to like monetize and just run, you know, with that opportunity. But it was never like a life goal but I think that that's also what happens when you come to Africa you move back you're repat you might have had all these ideas of how you wanted to navigate your career or your business but Africa will humble you right quick <laughs> you might have plans you might have like a vision you might think you know what you want to do but 
my own tip for anyone who's like relocating or wants to start a business or start a career here is be nimble. It's great to have a plan, but be ready to navigate like the terrain as nimbly as possible because you can come with a plan, it will break down. You need to be ready with plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E and plan F. That's what makes you, I feel, successful in Africa when you're able to navigate all the obstacles because you come here with a plan, there's no infrastructure, there are lots of obstacles and you constantly have to be resilient enough to navigate those obstacles. And I guess in your journey, right, before you even got to writing the book, you had somewhat of a career and still do in writing columns for some magazines, Mm. the TV shows, newspapers. You didn't just kind of wake up and go, hey, I'm going to write Africa's first financial chiclet <laughs> novel and be successful. And I remember actually the summer when you came to London trying to finish off the book mm. and that process. But I think in your journey and in finding your purpose in education, essentially. So when I had that aha moment, I still worked in financial services. So I started writing like the articles. It was something I was doing part time, right? So I was navigating my own personal finances. I was working and then, you know, I had this, you know, idea to start creating content for African millennial women like me. So with the hopes that, you know, hopefully I could find an interesting way to educate women about financial literacy without them necessarily making the same mistakes that I had made. So it was more like writing stuff from your own perspective. So as I was rebuilding my own finances and, you know, navigating all of that, all the lessons that I was learning firsthand, I was putting them like in articles. Um, The first one was called a Chanel bag versus a stock portfolio. It was on Bella Niger. And I remember being really reluctant at first to put it out because I thought, what if no one cares? What if, you know, no one at the time really cared about financial or even business education as much as we care about it now. It was more about entertainment and, you know, who's sleeping with who. So I didn't think people were going to respond to it the way that they did, but they did. Like I started getting so many like comments and emails and people reaching out to me. And the more I wrote the articles, the more people were reaching out to me to do like workshops and speaking engagements. I started working with, you know, people one-on-one. So there's women who's like, who are like, oh my God, I need help with my debt problem. Like I've literally gotten to a place where I'm in so much debt and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to navigate it. Basically that's how it started. And you know, when I saw that there was something there that I had found a solution to a pain point that quite a considerable number of women you know had and I hadn't quite figured out how that was going to be a business and I remember saying to one of my friends at the time that I was going to quit my job to start to focus on this small money stuff and he was like sorry what I'm (laughs) he was like I'm confused so you're going to quit your job to start writing articles who is going to pay you for that you are in Nigeria, Arisa. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember yeah. thinking, wow, okay, he has a point. And I was thinking through like, okay, what would products and services look like if I decided that I wanted to go with what at the time seemed like my mistress, smart money, 
what would it look like? And I basically just started to visualize it. Like I started thinking about writing a book at one point because my friend Debola had said to me, oh, I think you should write a book. And I started to flesh out, you know, that idea. And at that point I was like, okay, if I took a year off, if I resigned, I have enough of a financial cushion to survive to cover my expenses for at least a year. And if so, if this following my small money dreams are a delusion of grandeur, then at least I have a job to go back to. It was a calculated risk. But the interesting thing about that plan was that at the point at which I was now ready to launch the book, maybe like towards the end of the year, my father's company now basically went kaput. Oh, wow. And it was in a lot of litigation and all that. And I basically had no financial cushion to fall back on. Okay, so I, I say, oh, wow, but I know this already. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. <laughs> I tried to, yeah, to add special <laughs> effects for our listeners. <laughs> She's like, girl, mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I think we had enough conversations around that time. And I just kept thinking, oh, my goodness, is this a movie or what? Because I think... We all look for an ideal scenario in our entrepreneurial journeys, right? So we're looking for the ideal scenario is you have all this money in the bank or you have a job you can go back to, you have. And it almost seemed like year in, year out, the more impossible the circumstances became. And I remember this phrase that you said to me, you have to get to a point where you are hungry. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, in that moment, I think I understood what you meant. And I guess it's more about the equation of how much do you want this? How much do you want to see this execute to the very end? How much is this a part of the journey that you're trying to go on Mm -hmm. with your project, with everything else? Because some people could have easily had your circumstance and basically said, hey, you know, all bets are off here. I have no cushion, no safety net. My old job is now obsolete because Mm -hmm. the company is not even in a position to Mm -hmm. keep itself alive, let alone offer me a role. Mm -hmm. Perhaps maybe I should go and look for the next best thing, which is another role. So this was a thing for me, right? (laughs) So it's not want, it's need. Like you need it to work out because if it doesn't work out, you're literally going to starve. (laughs) And when you have a kid, that is just not an option. Like the option to fail or to give up is just not there. Like I would allow myself to cry sometimes and, you know, be in bed for a day or two days if I needed that. And the important thing was I needed to get up again and deal with things. Right. Like I always say that my superpower is resilience. It's navigating through the bullshit forgive my french yeah yeah we can swear on the podcast i've decided that swearing is okay okay um love it navigating the obstacles like so for me it was a huge you know struggle like it was a tough time for me in that you know i had started this thing and it was just about to start you know publishing the book and i had this amazing idea to go on a book tour across africa yeah and i remember the conversation we had about leveraging content right and how connecting with people through something that's rather seen as boring and putting that into people's consciousness in a way that they can relate to it and Mm. you know you had a great plan which was content but content needed money right and yet again when I go back and I think about, you know, those times and even just mm. different challenging times that I've gone through, I don't regret them. I do ask God sometimes and say, bruv, 
why does my own life have to be a Nigerian film? Why can't <laughs> I just, you know, have it easy, at least for a little bit? Like, why do I always yeah. have to be an example of how to navigate through these sorts of monumental problems, right? But in a way, I'm thankful for going through hard things because they force you to be creative in your thinking, right? Like, so they force yeah. you to... Sharpen tools. Yes, they force you to think out of the box. In that situation, right, I didn't have as much money as I would have had if I had my financial cushion, if I had access to my investments, you know, and things I'd invested in, you know, over the years. I would have had more money to do more things. I'll give you an example. So the first PR company that I had approached, because I had been writing and doing like TV interviews and all of that, but it was very organic. So people were reaching out to me because they loved the content that I was putting out and they wanted me to come on their platforms to talk about it more. I was getting free PR prior to writing the book. But when I had the plan for the book, right, like to launch the book, I realized that I needed a more formal like PR structure. I was going to need a more formal PR structure to amplify what I was trying to do. And I remember approaching one PR company first and if you see the bill they sent me so you know how you (laughs) go to them with your idea like oh I want to do a book tour across Africa I want to you know do this yeah (laughs) one day hits me with bill I was like what I feel like that's like the common challenge which we have a great idea we have a great product we have a great concept whatever else it is and then you hit time for execution and I think there's always this huge underestimation in reach and awareness. And, you know, like you read the theory that, you know, most large companies, 80% of their spend is in, you know, reach and awareness and marketing and PR. Mm. But you don't quantify it in the same way when you're starting out that mm. actually 80% of an empty pot needs to go into something that you're not sure will give you the results. Yeah. Things like that force you to think differently. So I saw that bell and I thought, never happening, right? Like, this is smart money, not stupid money. This is not going to make sense in any kind of like business model. So I eventually found another PR company that was amazing in terms of creating solutions for the problems that I had and finding creative ways for us to get around things. But you know, the Mm. most powerful thing for me was getting a bigger book tour than I even imagined, right? At the end of the day, based off of social connections, especially from social media. So what was now happening was there were women who were experiencing me on social media who had read the book and responded so well to it, not even just in Nigeria, but in Ghana, in South Africa, in Tanzania, Uganda, like so many different countries. And they would reach out to me to say, I want you to come to my country. And these women would set up media interviews so i would do tv radio they would set up events for me to come and speak at yeah i I remember one of our early conversations around one of these things and i was saying how do you know that they will come and sell you i I remember the first one we were so skeptical like huh what does this person want what do they want what are they looking for easy you know eventually i realized that i also didn't understand the power of what i had created and the platform that i was creating as well and how women were going to respond to it 
because we ended up now replicating that model across several African countries, which was such a beautiful thing. And I'm so thankful for taking that leap because if I hadn't, my mind would be so closed to all the different opportunities that I've since taken advantage of now because I would have just thought it's not possible or it doesn't make sense. Right. I think it was a great example of you leveraging, you know, your network. And at the time you talk about it a lot in terms of, hey, you know, I can leverage my network to mobilize some of my ideas. I mm. don't have the budget that anyone would think to mm. pull off you know, an Africa book tour. But through my ability to one connect with the audience that I've worked hard to build on social media and the relationships that that's given me I'm now able to leverage that and go out to countries that otherwise I didn't know a soul in um, successfully engage with but I think the one part and you know it sounds glamorous saying book tour but the hustle and the grind in making that happen because it's very much grassroots you know i think people negate or or don't appreciate that to build anything there is a hard graft now you were able to uniquely do travel food finance mothering luxury and carve that into your day job right <laughs> But what people don't see, and I guess you and I have the privilege of being friends and, yeah. and being entrepreneurs and, you know, sharing our, our battle scars often enough, is that actually doing that book tour was far from glamorous. Yeah. You had to be away from your daughter. You were bartering and negotiating flights, accommodation, and the man hours it takes to executing that. And just even the sheer fear of going into a country you've never been to before and just hoping that everything goes well. I think after every single like event or book tour or whatever, like I'm just amazed. I'm like, wow, you came to Kenya and 200 women showed up for you and they had never met you before and you had never visited the country before. I think the sheer power of that being, you know, my reality now, like it's just so humbling. You know, one of my biggest markets outside of Nigeria is Tanzania. No, I didn't know that. It is so amazing like to me like I get messages from women in Tanzania like every other day I sell a lot of books in that country more than a lot of other countries the way that they respond to the content even if it talks mostly about Nigerian women right and it's set in yeah. Nigeria it's just so powerful to me but I think a lot of what you touch on is not just specific to a Nigerian woman I think what you touch on is specific to women in general living in today's world Oh, definitely. I'd say that I knew that in a theoretical way when I was writing it. But the truth is, I didn't see the whole African impact. Like, I didn't see that I would go to South Africa and a woman would say to me, oh my God, I relate to Ladun because this exact thing happened to me. Because our systems are different, our languages are different. But somehow, like, those characters connected us as women. It wasn't about being Nigerian. It wasn't about being Tanzanian. It wasn't about being, you know, South African or Ghanaian. People responded to it like very like authentically and it's such a powerful feeling for me because imagine me sitting in my home office right and creating this and just putting it out there hoping for a great response I remember I probably said this to you when you asked me that summer because I feel like I was with you more than anyone else like the summer the days or weeks before I actually launched the first book 
right? And I mm. remember I was panicking and freaking out. Oh my God, you were bricking it. Beyond panicking, it was like the printer, how many copies could you actually afford to print? Where would you be able to retail them? Even the retail outlets were not even conventional retail outlets, but you were passionate about needing to have it across the country. We don't have the infrastructure in Nigeria to sell books on a large scale. So most people said to me, Arisa, you'll never be financially successful doing this, right? But I had to reverse engineer it at every point. So even with like mm. distribution, I had to ask myself, okay, so we don't have Waterstones or mm. Barnes and Nobles. There are no nationwide bookstores, right? Mm. There's no publisher that's going to come and give you 10,000 pounds and say, oh, go and write. And then when you bring your work, they will use their own marketing you know, machinery to push it. You have to do all of that stuff yourself. So I'm self-published and I had to start like using my network to leverage on things like selling the books at House of Tar, um, which has... 20 something stores across you know nigeria leveraging on health pluses for anyone who doesn't know what house of tar is it's a makeup brand and they have makeup studios and retail outlets mm. um, health plus is a pharmacy mm-hmm. so these are not places that typically sell books but these were places that had my target audience right mm. so i knew that women were going to go into those stores anyway to buy cosmetics to buy makeup you know i leverage on supermarkets so something like health plus it was the first time they were ever selling a book it wasn't yeah. part of their business model at all they said no to me many times it took months and months and partly one of my mentors stalking the owner of health plus until she yeah <laughs> she gave me just your superpower of resilience goodness when i say one something she can keep going and going and going. I know like everyone is always like oh my god your energy like it's just easier for me to just say yes now because you will wear me down but I had to think through things like that but ultimately I guess what I'm saying is even from the beginning and and I appreciate that you were even you were there when I was making these decisions so you can't even yeah. romanticize like you know that beginning part it was tough I was all over the place yeah. mentally and I hoped for the best I remember saying to you when you asked me what do you hope to get out of this experience and I said you know what I don't want to just write a book that people just say oh she wrote a book I want to write a book Mm. that people read connect to and have conversations about the way that they have conversations about Real Housewives of Atlanta I want it to be of leaning proportions every time I said that statement I remember whispering it because I thought how dare you actually compare what you want to do with leaning right so I hoped for the best but I can say now like almost four years later that it's one of the most amazing things that have happened to me because of the thousands of women that I've met and Mm. connected with you know through this book who send me emails every day dm me on instagram walk up to me in the supermarket and be like oh my god i said your book changed my life because the book i started my stock portfolio i bought land or i started budgeting better now i'm thinking about my financial future just the fact that smaller self yesterday a girl from (laughs) before beating city as in can have that kind of impact not just yeah. in, you know Nigeria but in other African countries I think the one experience that you haven't mentioned is your book being digitally oh yeah so I write this fantastic book and apparently it was so fantastic that the pirates thought it was a good idea to invest a lot of money okay I'm going too far first of all they pirated it digitally right so 
the book became so popular that people actually started creating whole Instagram pages selling the pirated copy of my ebook. Which you never actually published in that way. Yeah. So, no, what they had done was I'd put the ebook on Amazon for the first book, mm-hmm. right? And somehow, I don't know, technology, they broke into it and they started sending it. So most people were sending it by email, WhatsApp to their friends. It was in WhatsApp groups. But then some people took it a step further and started selling it, right? So in Nigeria, the book is 5,000 naira. So the person would say, oh, dear me, I'll send you the book on WhatsApp for 1,000 naira. And I thought, look, I was like, that's actually a really silly business model because once you send to someone, they can send to their friends and all of that. But then it occurred to me that when they didn't spend the time writing the book or they didn't actually have to spend any money like printing it or publishing it, like they don't really care about the business model. It's just a free mm-hmm. 1000 naira for anybody who is so desperate to, you know, buy the pirated copy. But it was a nightmare. I remember the first time I, you know, became aware of this. I wanted to see what version of the book they had. Like maybe it was photocopies, maybe it didn't look as good or whatever. And I asked my assistant to reach out to the person and buy it and all of that. God bless assistants for their research abilities. And she shows it to me and it's exactly the version that's on Amazon, right? I cried so much. Like I cried Mm. for like three days straight to the point that my assistant went to Benin to meet the person in person because she wanted to find out. Like, we tried to do a whole investigation, like, how they got it, all of that. But that's the thing. Once it's pirated digitally, there's almost nothing you can do about it. It's gone. So I even had people sending me screenshots on Instagram. Oh, my God, Arista, I love your book so much, so much. (laughs) But this is the pirated book. I've sent it to 50 of my friends, and they send me screenshots to prove to me that they love the book so much that they sent it to 50 of their friends. And I'm just like, honey, you owe me money because that's 50 times 5,000 naira. As in, yeah. But I realized that it's two things. Like, obviously, there are people who, you know, pirate books for a living, but there's also a lack of education in terms of the public. Like, someone sends you a book on WhatsApp and you just read it and you don't see anything wrong with it. Now, in Africa, for foreign books, right, it's wrong, but at least those people... Like, so, for example, you sent a pirated version of Michelle Obama's book. It's fundamentally wrong. But you see the thing, Michelle Obama has probably made millions of dollars, like, already from the book like in the US, right? I guess I'm conscious of time because perhaps we might not have that much time given the electricity issues. But being now where you are taking your love for TV series and creating your own TV series, when you first came to me with a project, I remember where we were sat and I thought, here we go again. This girl and her ridiculous ideas. Like, like no, I didn't think it was ridiculous. I, I thought it was a great idea. But it just seemed so far-fetched. Is I guess what I mean by like ridiculous. Because it was just like I didn't think it was far-fetched for me. I think my question to you was where do you put it? Given how vast your audience is now, mm. like how are you able to put it or wh- what platform could you put it on that would reach those people and even more? And you see, this is why people, I wrote the book, The Small Money Tribe, guys, because you have to have people like Zeze in your tribe to question the validity of your ideas, right? And <laughs> we laugh now. Is that what we, I do? Yes, like it's important. Like we laugh now, but I thought it was a far-fetched idea. And I remember like, I would discuss it with different people that I feel like are smart and will help me like think through the different aspects of it, whether they were in that industry or 
not. And even coming up with the business model for how this would work. And, you know, you ask me different questions. And the thing is, it forces you to think through, like, how it is going to work. And even when your friends have objections to things, right, like, it's a way of sort of, like, reverse engineering like the solution to the problem right i was very excited about turning the book into a tv series and i thought it was such a huge idea especially from a nigerian perspective like a how are you going to fund it b what distribution channels are available to match the quality of what you're trying to produce like in terms of who will pay for it right and Mm. well there's netflix in nigeria now but at the time we were having this conversation this was not it didn't even exist my biggest worry was the cost of executing a TV show. And I kept saying, but why don't you just shoot a pilot and then go sell the pilot and then see what happens? Because it seemed like such a huge risk financially. And you're like, no, I'm going to shoot all 13 episodes. And I thought, (laughs) oh, here we go. I was like, I'm going to just do this like this. Even that conversation was like a part of so many conversations for a long period of time, trying to figure out how this was going to work. I remember thinking I wanted to raise money from investors first, like to invest in the project. But then when I started thinking through what the revenue streams were, corporate sponsorship and product placements from brands in Nigeria, I realized that I would have to convince two sets of people and I might as well just focus on the one. So I'd have to convince investors that companies like First Bank, Unilever, like the brands that I wanted to be on board were actually going to pay the amount of money that I needed them to pay for it to be financially viable. So I'd have to convince the investors that that was possible. Then I would have to go and (laughs) make that possible, right? And when I started the negotiations with different brands, I realized it was going to be hard and I needed the project Mm. to pay for itself because Mm. what I was trying to like basically pull off, I don't think really been done before in Nigeria where I'm trying to turn a financial book into a TV series (laughs) and this is my first big production so I had done maybe I'd co-produced things with like business day for like my talk show like my financial TV show but that was simple that was me a guest in a studio it wasn't this whole production of getting some of you know the best actresses so Osasi Godaro, Ini, Tony Tones like Lala negotiating you know with them getting their buy-in on a project like this even getting the brands to see this as something that was going to be successful because one of the things I had to deal with were people saying to me well I said why would we entrust you with this kind of money you're not a producer so this is a risk you know my response to that was I'd also never written a book before and Mm. the book is arguably one of the most commercially successful books in Nigeria so I don't know how I'm going to do this which is with most things that I engage in. You wake up you dream them up and then you say hey I'm thinking of doing this and I'm like okay how does this link to anything you've done before and and I must say it's been beautiful to watch oh thank you your journey and we've known each other for long enough and our friendship has 
grown and evolved over the years. And I think especially through entrepreneurship, we found support, but mutual respect in our endeavors. You know, one of my favorite stories to tell is one time when I was still in paid employment, I <laughs> I love how you say paid employment. I know. I go to South Africa uh, for work and I don't know, for some reason I have to be in Hyde Park getting something for a client and I walk past a Malay store and I'm like, sorry, what? Like it looked like a Joe Malone store in London. And I, I walk back and I'm like, no, this cannot be Zezes Malay. And I go in and I'm just like, um, wow, wow, wow. And we were, I think we were in our 20s at the time. And yes, I started the business at 23. It was mad. So crazy to me that somebody that I knew since I was 10 was crazy enough to pull off something like this. And it's just so inspiring. Like everything that you did with moving Malay to London and getting it in Harvey Nicks, like you've always been such a big thinker. Oh, thank you. I remember when Zeze, like when we were in uni, today she wants to try. You were an entrepreneur before it was. Was cool to be an entrepreneur i was i was it's it's shocking actually when i think of all the things i did like all the things you did like i was like what is wrong with this girl like just stay in one place but you know all why the- can't i just go to party read my books and that be it right you no know? but like it forced you like you are such a big thinker like and it's important i feel to have you know, friends like that, that inspire you through their work. I knew the same too. Way before I ever thought about doing anything Pan-African, you were already like doing things Pan-African. You were already on CNN. You were already like taking a Nigerian idea to a South African market. And that was just so huge, like, you know, huge for me. So kudos. Thanks, my love. I don't think I see it. And in the same way, your projects, right? Like we have the insight of sharing with everyone in this episode, like, oh my God, that time when this happened, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But I don't think in the middle of it, you're not thinking of, hey, here's my long-term scale or impact. And I think this is where I guess with the podcast is so important because what I realize with each guest that in pursuit of our own dreams, our own visions that we must need to execute because of the Africa context, it becomes purposeful work. It becomes mm-hmm. beyond just the job. It becomes something completely different. And we're now at a place where you are Africa's first financial chiclet novelist. You're about to release an incredible TV show, which will define mm-hmm. a generation, which hopefully will carve for you know, the next generation. I, I remember you and I having this conversation, you know, I went to the WizKid David Doe concerts and I was mm-hmm. saying, imagine if when we were at uni mm-hmm. or if when we were still in school, we saw this and thought it possible. What would we be like now? Listen, yeah. do you know, it's so funny. I remember you going to that concert and we yeah. had a conversation about it maybe like the day after, I think it was after WizKids concert I was just so blown like when I saw the picture and I thought when we were in university if you told your parents that you wanted to be a musician that would be crazy what I I remember Banky W coming to one of those like random parties right like the perception was oh yeah okay nice singing boy you know what I mean (laughs) like now he's a 
freaking superstar like and it's way beyond like music it's even like you know the business side of entertainment like he's gotten it really right so he's basically mm. used that entertainment thing as a launching pad for other things and i think you know you've always been great at leveraging your network you've always been great at not being afraid to ask mm. i think that's something that hopefully through what you shared today on the episode that people take away i guess for anyone who doesn't know the smart money book or smart money africa org can you tell them where they can find you yeah you can follow me on instagram smart money rsa so smart money a-R-E-S-E. You can see all my shenanigans there. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the TV show will release this year. Yes. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. I've seen pictures and things. No spoilers, but <laughs> I think quality, storylines, etc. I've sent you the trailer. Didn't I send you the trailer? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I've seen something. So yeah. I'm excited for it. And hopefully it can be in more homes than you envisage now i do this with every guest on the show i get them to pronounce their names properly you now live in nigeria so it's a bit different because like you probably don't get your name messed up as much now than you did like when you were here do you know it's so funny because i think that living in england allowed me to just let go of any kind of irritation or anger towards the way people pronounce my name like because you hear everything aris I've heard all kinds of like pronunciations, but I mostly don't mind. So I let go of it. Even in Nigeria, like with the different tribes, different people pronounce things differently. My name is Arese Ugu. My full okay. name, my full Buni name is Agariak Monsi Yay! <laughs> Even I. and we're of the same tribe so i'm not even gonna go there thank you for joining us on this week's episode of third culture africans it's been a pleasure having you on the show and i hope that what you've shared your experiences not only inspires someone on this episode but helps them make life-changing decisions for themselves and for their families and loved ones thank you thank you so much for having me this was so fun Thank you for listening to this episode of Third Culture Africans, the Lifestyle Podcast. We would love to hear from you. So please find us on Facebook or Instagram at Third Culture Africans and leave us a comment. A review goes a long way in getting our show notice. So please leave us one if you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.